Hello, you're listening to Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law I'm your host, Dylan C. Platt. We need to make sure that we are doing a great job representing the folks we have now, but also using our experiences to uh, change the legal system forever. On today's show, we'll be discussing the changing role of the public defender at both the state and federal level. We have two guests here with us to discuss this topic. My first guest is Sharon Mitchell Jr. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Professor Judith Miller. Prior to taking office as Cook County's public defender, Sharon Mitchell Jr. was the director of the Illinois Justice Project. There, he worked to pass the Pretrial Fairness Act, which ends cash bond in Illinois. Sharon Mitchell Jr., welcome to Briefly. Thank you so much, Dylan. I really appreciate it. So your first legal job was at the public defender's office here in Cook County. And now you've come back after working outside of the government. What draws you back to the public defender's office? I'm biased, but I think it's the best law firm in the city of Chicago, County of Cook, State of Illinois. But, you know, I, I grew up on the south side of Chicago without the you know prerequisite pigment to believe that the justice system was all about good guys catching bad guys. Um, I grew up in a community where I saw the failures of the justice system. Folks in my family have been victims of crime. We've been victims of mass incarceration. Uh, We've been victims of disinvestment. So your work, you feel that that is reinvestment in the community, the work towards improving the justice system. I think working in the justice system, working to reform the justice system, working to uh, help people uh, in the justice system is always something that was attractive to me. Uh, It definitely started early on. I had a teacher, I think like in fifth or sixth grade, that started up like a classroom court system where everybody in the class got roles. Some were judges, some were police officers, some were prosecutors, some were defense attorneys. I happened to be a defense attorney. And that, you know, grew going to law school. Uh, clerking for the public defender's office and and realizing that this is the side that I wanted to be on. It strikes me that a lot of folks would perhaps try to escape their community, but you chose to come back. Yeah, my community is beautiful, right? The communities I grew up in, the community I was born in South Shore, uh, the community I live in now in Morgan Park, the community I raised in was was Pullman. I don't want folks to believe that because you see uh, one thing written about our community, that that is that community. Uh, but it was natural for me uh, to want to improve something that I believe was thriving. And I, I believe that um, was being held back uh, by a justice system that incarcerated so many of our young and talented people uh, that stole money out of the pocketbooks of, of those of the, who are loved ones connected to the justice system, who didn't give uh, you know, victims of crime or victims of mass incarceration of the closure or the things they needed to succeed. Um, so to me, it wasn't like an intentional idea that, hey, I'm going to invest in the community that I came from. It was something that was natural for me, something that I'm happy to do, something I'm blessed to do. It was an opportunity that I was given that I'm completely thankful for. You left the public defender's office to work for a nonprofit. How did that change your perspective of how to go about reforming the criminal justice system? You know, it added to my perspective. You know, the work that I did as a line public defender 
was essential to my professional development. I would not be able to do the job I have, I'm doing now uh, without that experience. Uh, but leaving the Public Defender's Office to work in criminal justice reform and public safety advocacy, um, working for the Illinois Justice Project, you know, I got an opportunity to learn how to advocate. I got an opportunity to learn how to lead. I learned about power. I learned about communication. I got the chance to work with and rub shoulders with people at the highest level of government stakeholders. And I got to work with folks that are activists and advocates and work with folks uh, who are trying to gain power. So it was really an incredible experience. I'm absolutely lucky that I've gotten so lucky in my life, starting from uh, day one with my beautiful parents and getting an opportunity to work at the Illinois Justice Project, which is a continuation of that luck. While you were at the Illinois Justice Project, you had a hand in helping pass the Pretrial Fairness Act, which will end cash bond in the state of Illinois in 2023. More than that, it reformats the entire pretrial justice system. And I was so excited to be a part of that project because that project was came from the people, right? There were many incredible stakeholders, people like Tony Parkwinkle, people like uh, Chief Justice Ann Burke, Amy Campanelli, Kim Fox, worked very hard on that project. But it was people. It was people power uh, that powered that project to the top. Um, you, know, you know, the support of of J.B. Prisker and, and Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton was incredibly important. Uh, but having that support from the ground level and working with people that weren't lawyers, right, that didn't have fancy titles, but still were committed to making their world a better place was probably the best experience I had at the Illinois Justice Project. What would you say to observers who believe that policies and legislation should really come from lawmakers? Those folks don't know what they're talking about. Um, listen, I, I'm all for folks with fancy degrees that have fancy educations. Those folks will always have a role, but policy should be informed and defined by the people who will face the brunt of it. And for far too long, uh, folks on the South and West sides, mainly Black women, had to pay millions and millions of dollars uh, to the state. Uh, to free their loved ones who were allegedly innocent. I say allegedly innocent because we spent a lot of time punishing people before their trial. Um, so to say that those folks that emptied their bank accounts uh, to support a system that did not make them any safer, but made them much poorer, to say that they don't deserve a seat at the table, I don't agree with it. And, and, and quite frankly, uh, that imbalance in power right? Uh, not having folks at the table who are being affected by these laws, I think speaks to the reality of the system now, where we're dealing with uh, mass incarceration and wrongful convictions. Uh, we're dealing with a system that does not make Black and Brown folks safer. It makes them, uh, puts them in a far worse position than they would if they we had a system that was informed by the people that was built to build up uh, the communities instead of tearing them down. It sounds like the kind of change you're talking about is not just for your individual role, or even for your office. You want to effectuate change throughout the entire criminal justice system. That's a tall order. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's certainly a process. You know, we have been uh, an insular institution, and it won't, we won't get there tomorrow. 
uh, but we are certainly doing our best best that we can uh, of opening it up to the community. And, you know, that happened in the previous administration, uh, you know, expanding the role of the public defender. And there are also tons of incredible partners that are doing that work as well. Uh, but we have a lot to do when it comes to opening it up to the community. And I hope that, that, that my appointment uh, will, will further uh, us along that path. On the topic of expansion, Cook County is already a massive operation, second only to L.A. County in terms of scale. How do you keep up the energy to communicate your vision and effectuate the change you want to the 700 lawyers under your supervision? Lots of coffee. Uh, (laughs) Listen, you know, we have 700 employees, right? So it's not just lawyers, right? We have investigators, we have uh, support staff, we have specialists, and, and you're right, it's a tall task. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big ship to turn around. But I think the good news is that we have been moving in this direction for quite some time. I think we've had some strong leadership from previous administrations, and I think it's time, you know, I think I want to take the opportunity uh, to continue to push us in the right direction. Uh, part of that is goal setting. Part of that is changing the tone. Part of that is improving our communication. And part of that is being open and honest about where we want to go. And I don't think I've been a streaking violet about uh, my goal to really uh, define a, a dual role, right? We want to be the best attorneys that we can be, the best investigators that we can be. We want to kick butt in the courtroom. But we also want to take our monopoly on experiences, our monopoly on data, our monopoly on narratives to change the kind of game, change the environment for future clients, because we know that they'll keep on arresting them. We need to make sure that we are doing a great job representing the folks we have now, but also using our experiences to uh, change the legal system forever. Now, you began your tenure as public defender with a listening tour. What did you find in the communities? What were you hearing from folks about what they wanted out of the criminal justice system? Yeah, we're, we're still on that process and, and we're still building up a team of folks that are going to look out and work on policy. I'm really excited that we are, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, redeveloping and reorganizing our office, uh, bringing in a deputy of policy and strategic litigation, uh, bringing in a deputy of communication, uh, bringing in a few lobbyists, bringing in um, somebody to do community relations. Uh, but again, also understanding that we have a day job, that day job is to represent folks in court. So bringing on a brand new class of 12 uh, assistant public defenders, uh, starting to build another class of assistant public defenders, strengthening our ranks because we know that caseloads are an incredible uh, hurdle to our success and we need to achieve, uh, do better on that. So, you know, we're in the process of both growth and we're also in the process, like you said, of listening and that work continues. I'd like to turn to the challenges ahead. What do you think is the biggest obstacle in your way to improving the criminal justice system? Yeah, you know, I I mentioned it before, you know, there are some real disparities when it comes to support and funding. I'm becoming a broken record, but, and I think that public defenders all across the country talk about this, but here in Cook County, uh, we receive less financial support than the sheriff, the prosecutor, the clerk, and the judges. Prosecutor gets about double what we get, or about 70%. 
uh, you know, the, the, the clerk, judges, sheriff, all much more. And I don't want to say that they need less resources, but I want to, but I do believe that given that we have a constitutional mandate to represent folks in court and given the, given the fact that this is an incredibly difficult job, that we need more support. Uh, we need more funding to do the things that we need to do uh, when it comes to representing folks. Uh, we come from a jurisdiction that is known as the wrongful conviction, wrongful confession capital of the world. Some observers believe that the dehumanization of criminal defendants is the greatest problem faced by public defenders, not just here in Cook County, but across the nation. Do you believe that the criminal justice system, as it is, is able to do justice for these criminal defendants, whom the system has so dehumanized? I don't think that there is a surprise uh, that we have always, throughout the entire history of public defense, really underfunded it. And I think that we are at a place right now where people are understanding the criminal justice system, more and more people are understanding that the criminal justice system is broken. And I think we're doing a fantastic job of changing the laws uh, that have defined that system. But quite frankly, that's one half of the ledger. We can change the laws, and I've certainly had a role in changing those laws. Uh, but the other part of that is ensuring that the people who do come into the system have adequate defense so that we don't have so many wrongful convictions, so that we don't have so much mass incarceration, so that we're not sending people away for decades and ruining communities, ruining families, not responding to the problems of our communities. So uh, I'm really looking forward to having conversations about parity. So in your view, how do we get these criminal defendants adequate criminal defense? There is no doubt that our office, that offices across the country have not done the best job it can do when it comes to our treatment of clients. And so part of that is finding the right people to do the job. But part of that is making sure that they have caseloads that are, are respectable, right? We have some of the greatest attorneys in the state of Illinois. Uh, I believe the public defender's office is an incredible place to work. It's an incredible place to practice. It is a career. Uh, but there is no doubt that the fact of the matter is that we have uh, caseloads that need to be addressed. And I think part of the issue um, is with that depersonalization is that we are struggling with caseloads. You know, they are higher than what they need to be, uh, but we're making progress. And I think we have strong, some strong partners. We have some strong commitments from uh, President Parkwinkle to support our office. She's done nothing but be supportive, um, the, county, the Cook County Board President. Um, and we will continue on that. With that said, I, I wouldn't say that the system is too mechanized uh, to do justice, um, just because I believe that perfection can never be a roadblock to progress and that there are things that we can do in this administration, things that we can do uh, to make the system better, to bring the office closer to the community. And I will try to spend my six years doing just that. But of course, you're not alone in this. You have an adversarial half. Kim Fox, the state's attorney, has recognized you as a colleague in criminal justice reform on the record. She ran as a progressive prosecutor. How has that relationship evolved as you two have worked together on criminal justice reform? Yeah, I think it's been great. You know, I, I, I have been a big supporter of uh, attorney Fox because I think that she is a strong partner in reform. 
And I think there are many strong partners in reform here in Cook County. Um, I believe that she has run on the idea that we can change the system. And I believe that there are other folks that have run on the idea that we can change the system. Um, from the sheriff, uh, uh, Tom Dart, who I got on 60 Minutes and said half of the people in my jail don't belong here, uh, to uh, the chief judge of the Illinois Supreme Court, uh, our governor, um, our lieutenant governor, General Assembly have passed laws, uh, you know, County commissioners have done a great job. Um, there are lots of people that are willing to move forward. Now, with that said, there will be conflict, right? Uh, we are on uh, opposite sides of the aisle. Uh, but my position is let's take the opportunity to work together when we can and then work respectfully on our sides uh, to, to, to seek justice. And, you know, our positions are obviously different on, on, on that. And, and that's okay. So it sounds like the stars have really aligned for criminal justice reform, at least here in Cook County, with you leading the public defender's office and Kim Fox leading the state's attorney's office. Is that all it takes or is there more to the story? Yeah, I think that you have to have leadership from multiple stakeholders for this to get done. And again, it's important, you know, what Paula Wolf has always taught me is that, you know, you can pass a law, but you need to implement it as well, right? So you need buy-in from both the top and you need buy-in from folks on the ground. So I think it is very important to have multiple stakeholders working on on, on these things. And, and listen, even in, in the context of being reformers, there are, you know, shades of gray, right? There are things that reformers can disagree on. You know, there are people that will be in different positions. So I think it's incredibly important for us to kind of set up a set of principles, a set of guidelines, take the opportunities to work where we can. And for offices like myself, like the public defender's office, to try to push people farther than they might normally go, not because it's our advocacy so much. And that's what we want to, we kind of want to, you know, exert our influence because what we see, you know, we have a very unique opportunity at the public defender's office. We speak to the families of folks that are, 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 are accused of offenses that are victimized by the war on drugs that are victimized by mass incarceration. We have these experiences, right? And we can take those experiences to make the justice system a better place. Um, and uh, I'm just so excited uh, to, to, to be a part of that process. I'm sorry that so excited to be part of uh, this group of folks that do this every day um, and take that experience and, and change the, the system. You're hailed as a nationally recognized thought leader on criminal justice reform. Have you seen the ripples of your work in other jurisdictions? That's not the way I would describe myself. So uh, I guess the checks are in the mail. Yeah, you know, we, we've certainly had on, on the any money bond front, uh, folks reach out to the work that we've done and, and look to mimic it. Now, like I said before, this is work that was born from a partnership of very motivated stakeholders, but a strong advocacy and uh, organizing uh, groundwork uh, that that motivated and helped power that movement. Um, so certainly the work of the coalition and the work of the network has drawn attention from outside of Illinois and, and folks are looking to replicate that. And, and we are incredibly excited, you know, as a, a former uh, member of a coalition, the coalition, 
Um, excited to see that happen. Um, and, and certainly the work we did at ILJP outside of uh, a money bond served as an inspiration for others, both inside uh, Illinois and out. Sharon Mitchell Jr., it has been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us here on Briefly. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So that is what criminal justice reform in the public defender's office looks like at the state and county level. But what about the federal level? Are they thinking about criminal justice reform? And how does that play into their strategies in the courtroom and their relationships with federal judges and federal prosecutors? Here with us to discuss these topics is my next guest, Professor Judith Miller. Judith Miller is a clinical professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School in the Federal Criminal Justice Clinic. Prior to joining the clinical faculty, Professor Miller was a trial attorney at the Federal Defenders of San Diego. There, she represented indigent defendants accused of federal felony offenses from arraignment through appeal. She received her J.D. from Yale Law School, as well as a master's in political science from Yale University. Hi, Professor Miller. Welcome to Briefly. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So what is the core responsibility of a public defender, whether state or federal? Well, the core responsibility of a public defender is to zealously advocate on behalf of their appointed client. And that's the constitutional mandate, the responsibility that we take on gladly. That's the really the core of it. Earlier on the program, I had a conversation with Sharon Mitchell Jr., and we discussed how he was shaping his vision for the Cook County Public Defender's Office. I imagine that process is different for a federal defender's office. How did they shape their rules? And that can really vary. You know, some public defender offices take on broader responsibilities. They, they can try to address structural issues that come up, even just sort of what's the organization of court? Uh, what do you do in COVID times? They can try to address issues that come up at the jail. It can also mean sometimes negotiating with U.S. attorney's offices on just a host of different issues. Um, everything from what are you going to do when the U.S. attorney's office brings 30 people to court at once and the federal defender office can represent only one of them. It can mean negotiating over things like standard terms of plea agreements or positions on policy issues. It can also mean sometimes litigating over issues that affects many clients, not just individual clients. And different offices can really take different positions on to what degree they want to take on these responsibilities and how they approach those responsibilities. Because it's, it's a little different from the individual responsibility of an individual public defender. And how so? I don't want to say just in a minimizing sense, but just in the, in the sense of solely, is solely to advocate for his or her individual client, even if that means sometimes taking positions that as a policy matter, the individual attorney might not agree with, or might be bad for some other criminal defendant, it doesn't really matter. The point is you've got to advocate for your client and advocate zealously. This sounds like a pretty complex system with lots of moving parts from different offices to different defenders having different strategies. How are these various defenders recruited and how are offices organized? Criminal defense in the federal system, there are three ways public defenders are appointed. There's 
what's called a federal defender organization. That's actually part of the judiciary. A federal defender is appointed for a given district, and then a number of assistant federal defenders or in there are some management positions as well are hired to work in that federal defender office. And those are actually government jobs. Obviously, you know, in terms of the ethics, you're independent from the judiciary, but it's still your, you are a part of the judiciary. So what about the other ways? There are also community defender organizations, which are independent nonprofit organizations that are funded by the judiciary, but they're, they're not actually a part of it. They're, uh, you know, they're handling the criminal defense. They, they handle a certain percentage of the cases in the district. Um, and so that has a, a different and also kind of complicated relationship to the judiciary um, as being sort of both, I think, as a practical matter, inside and outside. There are also private criminal defense attorneys who are appointed to represent uh, people accused of indigent people who are accused of crimes in a given district. And those are usually called panel attorneys or CJA attorneys. They're part of the Criminal Justice Act panel. Ha! Huh, so. Most districts have either a federal defender organization or a community defender organization, and also Criminal Justice Act panel attorneys who take the cases, the indigent defense cases in a given district. Um, In many districts, although not all, um, there are getting on to being, being eligible to be appointed to Criminal Justice Act cases you have to apply, you have to have some experience that shows that you're competent. Um, It's not something that you can just do straight out of law school or something that you can do if you've been doing bankruptcy law your whole life. You can't just sort of up and decide to be a criminal to get appointed federal criminal cases. So this system, these standards are upheld in every jurisdiction in the United States, or are there exceptions? The federal judges play a role in Uh, a sort of institutional role for those public defenders. Um, Either the reappointment role, appointment or reappointment for a federal defender, or approving or cutting vouchers for a CJA attorney. And what do those vouchers do? And that means when I say a voucher, that's the voucher is essentially the bill. So a CJA attorney does a, a bunch of work on a case and then submits a bill to the federal government at the end. And then a judge who may or may not have ever been a defense attorney, would review it and say, you know, this is reasonable, let's pay it. This is not reasonable, let's pay less of it, something like that. There are many places where this system worked really well, and there were some times where this system did not work so well, and there were still other places where it was sort of impossible to tell, but people were concerned, but the institutional structural structure created fear, regardless of what the judges were actually doing. And so they recommended a series of Um, reforms that were largely adopted by the judiciary. And when did that begin? Have they worked? A lot of those changes happened around 2017 or 2018. So I think TBD, what kind of a difference that makes. But that, so it might be that what I mentioned, my concern about sort of deference to local norms about judges is no longer an issue, which would be great. Um, But you know, I think that the, the jury is still out, so to speak. Um, but there is sort of this interesting question about what are norms around the scope of a legitimate defense. I think that there are judges and I'm not, um, I don't think, I, I think that they would agree with, I think, gosh, I wish I could remember who, who just said this publicly, 
But I think there's plenty of judges and some prosecutors who who think that people who are you know indigent defendants shouldn't get uh, a kind of gold standard defense. They should get a sort of a more minimal defense that kind of almost skims over the top, catches the biggest issues, and that's about it. If that's the attitude of the judges in the district, then that seems like it would impact the relationship between the Federal Defender's Office and the U.S. Attorney's Office. So do you think it's fair to say that the different Federal Defender's Offices will implement a philosophy of how the relationship between themselves and their judges in their jurisdiction or themselves and the federal attorneys in their jurisdiction will play out, particularly in those responsibilities or objectives that go beyond simply representing their client in court. And there also can be differences of opinion in the way to approach that. Speaking in really broad strokes, you know, there seem to be kind of two or maybe three different philosophies on what to do about these broader responsibilities. Some offices will negotiate, but then uh, if negotiations fail, we'll take action in court as necessary. Other offices think that negotiating is less a part of their institutional responsibility. And really what they should be doing is supporting their individual public defenders in court. And that's it. You know, you you can negotiate in a way that is backed by a threat if the negotiations fail. Some public defenders seem to have the philosophy that taking to the courts and litigating when negotiations fail can undermine the relationship between the public defender office and the U.S. attorney's office or the public defender office and the courts in a way that actually makes negotiation harder and less successful in the long run and is ultimately bad for their clients. So whether or not a particular point of a defendant's case is negotiated may not be based on that particular case, but rather a policy, a broad policy at the office. In your opinion, do aggressive policies negatively impact outcomes for the clients that federal defenders represent? You know, my my office had a more aggressive position. And from my perspective, as a lowly former line attorney, that did not seem to undermine our negotiations at all. Um, the one example I participated in, the um, marshal service decided they wanted to shackle everybody who came to everybody who came from jail to court in court. Um, and there was a theory, there were a series of negotiations between um, my federal defense, then federal defender and judiciary. And I think the U.S. Attorney's Office also participated opposing this shackling. Uh, The negotiations, the the defense position lost. Uh, The judges decided to implement the shackling. Um, And then we took to, we we started litigating it in court and it actually went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And now again, this is just from my perspective. So perhaps I don't, I didn't know that it made a difference, but from my perspective, it, it did not seem to make a difference to, or in any way undermine future negotiations. It, you know, the fact is it, this was nothing, it wasn't personal. It was, we were advocating on behalf of our clients and that's what we were fighting about in court. So it sounds like a public defender's office is juggling a lot of balls here. And on top of all of that, there's the matter of how to effectuate criminal justice reform. 
Now, on one hand, we have reformers like Sharon Mitchell Jr., who are doing so at the state level from the public defender's office. On the other side, in Cook County, we have Kim Fox, who ran as a political reformer, as a progressive prosecutor. I guess I'm wondering if there are any equivalents to this reform movement at the federal level. So if I could just speak again primarily about the federal system, I think that there are not going to be national reforms because of the role of the Department of Justice. Federal prosecutors are really different than state prosecutors today, or at least they're different vis-a-vis the, so the progressive prosecutor movement, which is, I think, what, you know, as you said earlier, that's part of what prompted this podcast. Uh, you know, there, there are, as, as you know, there's this whole movement nationally where we're so-called progressive prosecutors run for office on criminal justice reform platforms of varying, you know, varying, varying the degree to which how, how transformative they are, but um, you know, some 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 changes, some of which would be pretty significant changes. And many have been elected, some haven't been, but there, it's a it's a thing. It's really happening. <laughs> um, you know, I think that the big difference is that at the federal level, that's just not really a thing. Um, there are you know, my when I was preparing for this, I, I was going to say that there are no federal, there are no federal prosecutors who hold themselves out as progressive prosecutors. Um, it looks like that actually might not be 100% true. Uh, I, I do wonder if the newly appointed federal prosecutor in the District of Massachusetts holds herself out as a progressive prosecutor. She might. Um, but, you know, look, it's close enough. It's, it's, if it's not none, it's almost none. Um, there's certainly not a movement in the way that there is at the state level. There's not, it's not a phenomenon at the national level. Um, and I'm just unaware of any United States attorney's offices that have tried to take on the sort of the, you know, even the most minimal federal equivalents of the state progressive prosecutors. I think, you know, there, there's just no federal equivalents to, to Larry Krasner in Philadelphia or even Kim Fox here in Chicago. And, you know, I say that and I hope I'll be wrong. You know, this is one of those things, if, if you were to do a little bit of research and say, you know what, Professor Miller, you missed so-and-so in the district of, in the, some district, that would be great. I would love to be wrong about this. But as near as I can tell, there, there just isn't one. Um, and, you know, there, there's a great article that just came out recently, a kind of pop, easy to read article. I recommend everyone look at it by Mark Osler and Rachel Barkow that builds on some of their research. And I think that some of this has to do with the, really just the Department of Justice's utter failure on this front. And I say it's failure from my perspective. I don't think they think of it as failure. They think of it as success. Um, and I guess I just, to start with, I just wanna give a few examples of what I mean and then talk about the, what I think of as the institutional reasons for that and why the Department of Justice stands in the way of any kind of meaningful change. Um, on criminal justice issues. You know, just as an example, ostensibly the Biden administration is, is against, it, it condemns the death penalty, but they continue to pursue it this time against uh, Tsarnaev, the Boston bomber. Um, they, the DOJ continues to move um, gun cases and other cases from state court to federal court for the same charges, um, but people face much longer sentences. Uh, the Department of Justice continues to reject changes to forensic, you know, I think that phrase is forensic science, but I don't want to dignify it with the word science. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of talk nowadays about following the science and the importance of science. But the Department of Justice, and this is under the Obama administration, really just flat out rejected science for with regard to the with for, regard to forensic methods. The, the background is under the Obama administration. There were two blue ribbon panels that issued just extraordinarily damning reports that concluded that many of the commonly used forensic methods were just in essence drunk. Um, just to, to some, I mean, this is, so it's a little bit of a simplification, but sort of like this. If a forensic hair examiner comes to court and says, these two hairs likely come from the same person. It, how do we know that that's true? Is, is there any way to know that that forensic hair examiner is making an accurate statement or an inaccurate statement? And we just can't tell, or at least at the time of the reports, we couldn't. Um, and instead of adopting the recommendation of these blue ribbon, blue ribbon panels, the DOJ largely rejected them um, without really ever responding on the merits to the underlying scientific criticism about the validity of their methods. Now, I'm not trying to get into the weeds. That might seem obscure, but it's, it's really not. Forensic methods are used to convict people. And when the Department of Justice rejects uh, kind of consensus views about how to conduct prosecutions in a fair way, that means that, you know, those kinds of reforms, which aren't even that radical, they're not even that transformative, just don't happen. Um, you know, the Department of Justice similarly rejected, has rejected essentially all meaningful second look mechanisms. Second look means people who are in prison now or who have been convicted of crimes for those people to be able to come back and have someone take another look at their sentence or their conviction. Do you think a federal attorney may have a different outlook here? Because they, unlike a federal judge, are not appointed for life. Is there a political pressure at play here? I think it's actually not so much political pressure. It's the norms of the being a prosecutor type pressure. So what sort of things are holding the Department of Justice back from implementing reform? You know, I think that the Department of Justice is just not institutionally situated to make the kinds of changes that would bring federal prosecutors in line with, I guess I'd say, even the least progressive of the state-level progressive prosecutors. Your question about politics is really interesting, but I guess I think of it more like the decision makers in the Department of Justice are prosecutors whose primary concern is prosecution. And most of them are former career prosecutors. What I mean by that are people who have served substantial amounts of time as assistant U.S. attorneys. By the time one has participated that long in the regular work of the department, not we're not talking about you know a special program where you target a handful of people, but the sort of just general day to day of the office. You know, it's hard to say that that person is ever going to be much of a dissenter from the status quo. And and more than that, you know, I. I guess I want to make a comparison here, um, which is, so, you know, in the United States Department of Justice, there's not really a client. If you think of this in comparison to being a, a criminal defense attorney or a public defender, you have a client, a client to whom you are accountable, or at least you're supposed to be accountable. And, you know, even in non, non-criminal practice, it's essentially the attorney says, here are your range of options. You could do one thing, which has certain risks, or you could do this other thing which has different risks. What, what do you want to do? 
or what path fits your values better. So what is the difference for a federal prosecutor? But what's really different is that when you're a prosecutor, you don't have a client like that. The prosecutor, him or herself, stands in for the client. And now the prosecutor is supposed to be making decisions on the basis of justice. And I'm not saying that the prosecutors are dishonest about that. At least most of the prosecutors I I talk to, they're really, they're trying to do the right thing um, on a day-to-day basis. They're not, you know, snarling evil people. That's not how it works. But they really believe they're on the side of justice and they decide what is justice. But what that means is that if they're on the side of justice as they've decided it, then anything that impedes them and gets in their way is not on the side of justice. Um, And that can be a problem because then the person who's at the top has lived with that, has sort of come to really believe that about him or herself and also about the line prosecutors and the work that they're doing. Um, And that's not even getting into the potential abuses when sometimes it happens that prosecutors come to think of a law enforcement agent as standing in for the client. Um, And I've had prosecutors tell me as much that this is a thing that happens. There's also some qualitative research confirming that this happens. Um, And I think that that can happen, especially with with younger prosecutors that they maybe aren't standing up to an agent who's very experienced and and knows a lot, but you know, the the prosecutor has to be ultimately the decision maker, but even setting all of that aside, you know, there are these, the, the kind of that mindset that develops over time then comes to pervade, not just the career prosecutors, but the career prosecutors who become leadership, someone like Sally Gates, um, so I would just make a comparison to the progressive prosecutors who are usually elected. Now, they also don't have account of clients, but they are accountable via elections, um, which and the elections are a pretty robust referendum on 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 the policies they want to pursue. You know, Larry Krasner was just real. Well, just won his I think just won the primary um, but in essence was was reelected. And it was a knockdown drag out fight between him and another person who said, no, everything you're doing is wrong. I want to pursue a different way of being a district attorney. And Larry Krasner won. You know, that that election was about being a progressive prosecutor or not. Um, and that doesn't seem to really happen at the federal level. So the politics, it's not that there aren't politics. I, I, I know that there are politics, but the the politics have a, a very different, um, they, they come into play really differently. Uh, and it, at least from what, what seems to me to be the case is that the Department of Justice gets in the way, not so much necessarily because of what well, perhaps political fears are part of it, but that there's almost a kind of institutional disinclination, even on very technical issues, um, to support reform. Um, that really comes out of the DOJ's sort of institutional position. You know, the the kind of opposition to any kind of changing sentences retroactively, opposition to compassionate release, opposition to clemency, the kind of absurd situations that are still arising where assistant United, excuse me, assistant United States attorneys argue in courts, in court that they can't release someone who if sentenced today would not receive that same sentence. You know, that, that's just very different than the state where a new prosecutor who comes into office is no problem criticizing the prior prosecutor. They, 
you know, I think you see that a lot, especially with the progressive prosecutors. They're specifically running against the prior prosecutors, whereas in the at the federal level, reform and change. My sense and the the sense of literature I've read on this is that the prosecutors seem to see that reform means implicit criticism of their prior work and end up opposing reform for that reason. That's not to say, I don't think anyone's acting in bad faith here. Um, I, I think that they think that the prosecutors think that they were doing the right thing and feel sort of almost sometimes personally attacked um, at the prospect of these, these kinds of reforms. But at the end of the day, that, that means that anything that has to go through the Department of Justice, I just, I'm very skeptical that it will result in meaningful change in the criminal system. And that's all the time we have today. Professor Judith Miller, thank you for joining us here on Briefly. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review.